I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. And if you're not already subscribed, do so. And of course, leave those iTunes reviews. They're really important and we really appreciate them. You can find what we're up to on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. This podcast is at the Rugby Dungeon. And of course, there is the world's biggest rugby podcast, me, Tim and Phil, every Monday without fail, including the bank holiday, because we never stop at Rugby Podcast. Now, I'm going to mention another rugby podcast today, uh, our good friends at Green and Gold. Obviously, an Australian-based rugby podcast, an excellent, excellent show. And the reason I'm mentioning them is because they introduced me to today's guest, who is Ben Darwin. Now, you'll probably remember Ben. He played tight head for Australia. He's also played against the British and Irish Lions. But he's not here today to talk about his career as such. He's here to talk about something rather different. So, um, yeah, you're really going to enjoy this. So, without waiting any further, here is my interview with Ben Darwin. Hope you enjoy it. How are you, Ben? Good, very good. Now, uh, are you guys on a bank holiday over that side of the world, or have you just had a normal working day? Um, I have uh, I have uh, three boys on the age of six, so there's no such thing as a normal working day. <laughs> uh, it's total chaos all the time. And a holiday, as you might regard it for me, is the worst nightmare because all the schools close and all the... Um, all the daycare facilities closed, so I find those to be the biggest working days. But no, today was just a normal working day. My kids are at school and daycare, so I was very relaxed. Excellent. So I guess most people in the UK will remember you from playing against the Lions. Um, and since then, your career's taken a bit of a turn. Just explain to everyone what it is that you do, and we'll go from there. Sure. So the turn that it took, first of all, was I had my uh, neck injury in 03. Mm. Um, and I retired uh, at the straight away after the end of that. And then I went into coaching, um, and I was part of the Western Force, coached rugby in uh, in Sydney at Club Rugby, coached in Japan a couple of times, and as well the Melbourne Rebels. And then when the um, the global financial crisis hit in 2008, um, I sort of thought to myself, well, not everyone can afford just a Fords coach, so maybe I should do analysis as well. And I had an interest in the area and had an interest in computing, so. I thought I might as well learn that skill set, and I got picked up as the uh, video analyst for the Melbourne Rebels, as well as the data analyst and a bit of coaching as well. And it was a really interesting process because we basically had to sit around a room and say, "Okay, let's go and get a bunch of players." And that that experience, coupled with my experience as being part of the Western Force, kind of shaped 
my understanding about teams as well as my own experiences in, in Australia. Mm. And then in 2013, I started a, started my company, Gainline Analytics, but it was actually about um, uh, recording all of the players who were off contract, off press releases around the world. And I was getting guys overseas, mostly in, in Europe, to actually sit and just look at press releases and read them and then take a take um, take documentation over all the players. And we did it about 15,000 players. So we were watching a lot of trades of athletes. Wow. And as we started to build up that understanding of trades of athletes, we saw that certain teams were doing things well, um, and oftentimes they were not recruiting, and other clubs were recruiting lots and lots of talent and underperforming. And I was really interested by this. And so I started to look into it, and I, um, one of the guys who works for us, Pat Ferguson, he's actually now at Harvard doing his PhD. He put us on to a guy called uh, Grossberg, Mm-hmm. who wrote, wrote a book called Chasing Stars, and that was about the portability of talent between stockbroking firms. Wow. And we, uh, I, I looked at this and I thought, there's actually something to this. So I started to look into that. I started to look at how people affect a group when they move across from one organization to another. So there's portability of talent. There's the impact of talent on, on the, a big group. So if, if someone comes in with, with influence on a group, we looked at how quickly people take up information. So, you know, do young players take up information faster than older players who are traded in? And um, and we also looked at systems like national teams. And uh, the more we looked into it, we realised there was actually a level of predictability around how people were going to perform given the nature of the relationships that they were in. And there's sort of three levels of the relationship. So there's between the people, there's people to the program that they're in, and then there's people to the position they're in. So if you change someone like a Sam Burgess from rugby league to rugby union, and then you're dealing with a totally different program and you're dealing with a totally different uh, bunch of people and a totally different code, then it's going to be extremely hard for you to gel into those environments. Yes. And you're going to be functioning in a chaos, uh, an environment of chaos. So um, whenever you change any of those three, you get it's, it's, it's hard and things can get dysfunctional. So... We found a way to measure it, and we looked across 30 years of about nine different sports, and wow. we're sort of, you know, I'd say we're only 20% of the way along really true understanding of what's going on, but we're slowly but surely starting to unravel the notion of a champion team versus a team of champions. That, that's absolutely incredible. So just taking it back to when you joined, joined the Rebels, you said you were picking a team from scratch. Were you using some of the techniques... Um, then, which you're, which you're using now to to identify talent, and what what was what was that process? What attributes were you looking for? If if I could go back in time and start that process again, I'd do it very differently. Yes, I'll be honest with you. So so when we tried when we built the rebels, it was about saying let's get the most competitive team we can on the field. And I, I you know this is 2011, so this is a long way before I started any of my research. Mm. But now that I look at retrospectively, I probably would have recommended we do things in a different way. But we were trying to create success as quick as we possibly could in a competitive marketplace. And um, we probably, you know, I'd be remiss of me not to say we had the funds to do so at that stage as well. But, um, you know, when you bring to when you bring together a bunch of people from very, very different influences, so we brought guys out of Europe, we brought guys like Gareth Delve, Danny Cipriani, Sterling Mortlock from the Brumbies, Adam Fryer, you know, a bunch of really, really fantastic players, but it was a bunch of great people all trying to discuss together on the field how we should play. Yeah. And if you're doing it on the field, then it's probably a little bit too late. So um, 
and it, and and no amount of training realistically could have prepared us for that for that season that we went through. But you know that's not unusual. Twenty five you know expansion teams on average win twenty five percent of their games. They don't they don't build success straight away. And um, you know if we had maybe enough money, if we if we spent another say thirty million, we could have maybe built a competitive team. But this is a a pretty well put together competition in Super Rugby and. Um, we didn't put together junior players. We put together senior players from around the world into that team, and all of them have a level of, of strong understanding of their own system, and so they all wanted to contribute, which is extremely natural. Um, and, and one of the things we find is you can have a fantastic culture, but if you don't understand where nine's going to put the ball in the tenth chest or how he steps, you know, you, it's very difficult to be successful, and particularly around defence. We we still scored points in that season, no question, but we just leaked tries because understanding manifests itself the most in the ability to defend together wow see that really surprises me I actually thought defence would have been the, the easy part it would be the attack way, where you would have struggled well look at Barbarians games yeah. you know you, when you take two big you know superstar teams you remember that north-south game yeah I think it was like 60-40 or 70-40 you know generally it's the ability to trust the person next to you that they're going to shoot or hold or go defensively where they are and you know, you work together as a line, but you can. St- you know, I remember we we played the Sharks in that season, and we lost 42-38, and um, or something like that. And I remember Cipriani scored one of the best individual tries I've ever seen. So, you know, there are some areas of attack that teams do as a team, but there's also areas where an individual piece of def- you know brilliance, particularly in football as well, um, that can just you know allow a, a try to be scored or a goal to be scored. Um, but you generally defend. You generally defend as a group, and. Um, you also it's also defending is about working hard for each other you know are you willing to throw yourself under the bus so to speak for one another and work hard when there's a line break made against you do you work hard to get back or do you just jog you know so um, there's some on-field stuff and off-field stuff about it but we generally find that um, you know cohesion manifests itself in defense and if you look at the wallabies over the past um, you know so you know, I played Wallabies 01 to 03, but, you know, around that period, we played 10 tests. We scored 20 tries over those 10 tests, but we allowed 17. And, you know, over the last um, last 10 tests Australia's played against New Zealand, we've actually scored 17 tries. So we're only three behind in that area, mm. but we've allowed 38. And by our markers, Australia is not what it was from a cohesion perspective as it was during that sort of 99-2000 period. Wow. Okay, so when you were when you're analysing all the various sports, does anything stand out about rugby which makes it unique, or are you surprised about how uniform most of the sports are? Uh, overall, uh, w- what has surprised me probably is that we thought cricket would not be affected by cohesion at all. Yeah, we were really surprised at how much you know that in cricket you would basically defend together and. We did some work with Stephen Fleming at the Melbourne Stars, and you know one of the things he was talking about was you basically pressure batsmen into um, into mistakes together, and it's also about understanding what your bowler can do. So understanding the skill sets of the people you have and how you can use those skill sets. If you say make a comparison between rugby league and rugby union, is that individual relationships in rugby league are far more important from a defensive perspective because they fundamentally most teams stand in the same order across the field. Yeah. You've got your left edge, you've got your middle, you've got your right edge. Whereas in rugby union, outside of first phase, it's a constant movement all of the time. Oh, I get between it. different people into different, into different relationships. So off starter phase, 10, 12, 13 is extremely important. But outside of that, everyone matters. So understanding is extremely important across the whole group. And so 
um, you know, just because you might have a, a 12, 13 grade combination doesn't mean you can really um, necessarily do well. And I think a really good example of that um, this year was Scotland was, you know, mm. Jones, was it Howie Jones? Uh, Hugh. You know, coming in from the Stormers. And if you look at all the tries that England scored against Scotland, there was basically a road between 12, 13 channel. Yeah, it was. And that's not his fault. This is, is this is the biggest thing I've learned is that nothing is anyone's fault. It's just an ability to get to a point of understanding. You know, I saw a thing the other night on on um, people learning accents, and they say accents are just about time. You know, if you get enough time, you can pretty much pull off a good accent, but you need a lot of time in order to be able to do it. Well, you know, the same in rugby is a lot of it's about time and understanding. It's it's not that Burgess was bad. It's just that he came too late and he didn't have enough time to get ready. Awesome. So, who in your mind? is doing rugby well in terms of cohesion? You know, there's a there's what we call an unconscious competence. There are some systems that are successful accidentally. Mm. There are other systems that are successful because they can't afford it. If you look at Iceland and football, for example, yeah, part of why they beat England is because they don't have any money. Um, they don't have enough people to, or coaches or facilities to have an age group as, as England has all the way through. So all they have is under 16s and under 19s. So you've got 12-year-olds playing for Iceland under 16s. Huh. And so that is a that is a system that we would call unconsciously competent. They're not meaning to do it. They just can't afford it, but it makes them better. So by the time they came to play against England, they were 260% more cohesive than England. Um, now, if you, look at, if, if you look at who's actually doing it well and planning and building themselves well uh, in, in rugby, do you mean, or just general sport? Uh, rugby. Uh, I mean, Saracens are extremely well built. There's yep. obviously, you know, they've obviously got the financial clout to do that as well. Um, you know, they they looked a lot at San Antonio Spurs. They use the term pounding the rock, which I love, which is, you know, a stonemason, you don't break a rock by hitting it on 50 different places. You keep hitting it on the same spot over and over again. And, um, is that where the you know, term... That's the San Antonio Spurs motto. Um, I, w- I, wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware that that's where the term came from. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's actually a it's actually a guy who was a politician, who, who um, he said that if you wrote a thousand letters, eventually by the thousandth time, people would give up and, and <laughs> you know give in to his will. So um, the uh, so there's you know I think Leinster are doing it extremely well. Yeah, Leinster, um, Munster have now you know we measure every club in the world, every rugby team in the world, and we measure every league team and a lot of football clubs and basketball clubs and. You know, um, if you look across the world, you know, Munster have done it well. They've now been going back to the right way of doing things. Leinster, Saracens, um, you know, um, uh, there are other clubs that have gone away from the way being built well previously. I won't, I won't bag any clubs, but um, there would be uh, uh, San Antonio Spurs um, in Australia. There was an AFL club, mm-hmm. Western Bulldogs, that won a title out of nowhere a couple of years ago. And, and one of the things that we've been finding is that young players learn faster okay. because they don't have pre-indoctrinated systems of doing something. You know, if you, go and, if you go and get in a car that you've never driven in before, part of the problem is the car you drove in before gave you habits, didn't it? You, the gear stick is on your left. But yeah. It's not, and you put your hand there and it's not there anymore. So that's what happens under duress. People go back to their old habits. Um, so, so, you know, the average person takes three years to, to hit their peak once they change organizations. That's incredible. Um, but there are different positions where it's less or more important. Centres, for example, or lock in rugby is really important, whereas wingers will change codes and change games much more easily. Um, I think uh, 
I think there are um, there are organisations that have the financial clout to be extremely successful, mm. and you know, money money. If you've got enough money, you can buy a title. There's no question. But we find that they're generally unsustainable. And so I'd say a club like Toulon yeah. has shown they, they had enough money to hold a group of guys together for a couple of years. But the problem is that that's not sustainable. Um, certainly not financially sustainable. And at some point you fall and you fall pretty hard. Um, whereas, you know, a club like a Leinster, if they didn't quite have the money, they'd still be pretty well put together. Because, you know, if people grow up somewhere and they play for that club, they'll take a pay cut to stay. You know, how many people at Toulon would actually take a pay cut to stay? Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. Um, okay, and so in terms of, of terms of Lancer then, what is it that makes that a successful atmosphere? I think that um, I, I look at things from the chicken and the egg perspective a little bit more, which is it's a, it's there's a lot of stuff being done into what makes a great culture. Yeah. You know, like your All Blacks book, what are they, you know, legacy and stuff like that. We looked at organisations that have been culturally terrible. So there was a team in, in, the, um, in Australia called the West Coast Eagles. Okay. And last week, another one of their players went to jail. Um, they, they, a lot of them have drug, were drug addicts. Um, a lot of their guys, you know, I'm sure terrific blokes, but they, they've had a lot of issues with um, behavioural um, uh, drug issues. Players admitted to stealing scripts off their doctor. Um, you know, Goodness. really poor and, and associated with crime and, um, and a lot of drug usage. Now, that team in its time was in the finals 15 out of 17 years in one of the most competitive competitions in the world. So from a cultural perspective, it was disastrous. Yeah. From a cohesion perspective, it was fantastic. And part of it was geographic isolation. It was hard to get players across to Perth. The, the Perth Wildcats basketball team finals for 29, 30 years in a row, sorry. And part of it is they have trouble getting people to move there. So they just have to stick with what they have. Um, my apologies, your question was, um, why, why is clubs like Leinster doing it well? Yes, exactly. What, you know, um, what, what, are, what are the features there? Th there, is, there is limitations that are placed on them by the IRFU. Mm -hmm. They have a steady flow of good players coming through the system. There's no question that's, that's, that's attributable. They haven't gone down the path of saying we need to go external. They go by the notion of, as a lot of you know, good European, not necessarily English, but good European football clubs have said, if you look after the academy, the academy looks after you. Yeah. And I think it's a patience and an understanding that the player you, you buy is not the player you get. You see a player at another organisation, he looks better than he's going to be when he arrives because he's a representation of the relationships he currently has within that, within that team. But when he arrives, you go like, well, what happened? You know, in rugby league, they call it the Melbourne Storm Mirage. <laughs> it's fundamentally different. Or, you know, people say that about Bayern Munich or Manchester United. So um, when we look at a trade of athletes, there's three parts. What are they coming from? What of their skill can you actually separate from that, from that organisation? And, and, and the last part is what are they coming into? And the more chaotic, the harder it is to function into that team. Um, and I think it's, it's a notion of you don't necessarily... You know, facilities are not the be-all and end-all. Um, you don't necessarily need, you know, all of the very best in order to be successful. And we've seen a lot of really interesting examples of organisations that don't necessarily have the best um, facilities, the best GPS or the cryo chambers and all that sort of thing. Um, but they're actually very, very successful. Um, so it's a, it's a, 
I think it's, a, it's, it's realistically an understanding of what's made teams successful in the past yeah. and not relying on talent. And one of the things we say is it's not the... Um, it's not the uh, it's not the who it's the house. If you build the house right, then talent will produce itself, and um, coaching can can genuinely help. But we've certainly seen occasions where coaches were in charge of very very cohesive teams, and later on themselves did not show themselves to be terrific coaches. But but simply um, they were um, they were able to go along with the system that was in place. Um, and uh, and you know, the, and and oftentimes, you know, a lot of players and coaches are doomed to be either geniuses or idiots, and um, a lot of it is cohesion based. If you look at coaching, for example, um, you know, uh, the average the average manager in the championship in English football, which is the, obviously the second division, yeah. uh, is last point eight of a season. So there's a lot of blame getting thrown around on managers that isn't necessarily attributable to them, but. It's just easier that way for a lot of people. Now, that's an interesting point. So um, I was interviewing Brian Redpath last week, who is a coach at a championship side at, York, at Yorkshire, Yorkshire Carnegie. And in one of his previous interviews, not not with me, he's mentioned uh, soccer I'm, style. I'm from, uh, I'm from, my dad's from Pudsey, by the way. So. Ah, right, OK. Yeah. So um, he, in one of his previous interviews, not, not mine, but he mentioned that um, rugby managers are on, under soccer-style pressure now. Uh, yeah. Now... That has to be short, short-sighted, bearing in mind all the things which we, which you previously mentioned. So, I guess my question would uh, would be, what is driving them to make decisions such as swapping coaches? You look at someone like Northampton; they they have done it. Leicester have famously done it. Uh, Worcester have bought in some new coaches. Bristol have bought in something like three new coaches. Um, each of those is an interesting, different example, and I'll I'll um, I'll say here and now I'm, I'm I've worked a lot with Gary Gold at Worcester, yeah. so he's he's um, uh, he's brought a whole bunch of different things to the table. But he he's always admitted to himself he's not the greatest coach in the world, but he has a good understanding of what's worked for him mm. um, before. And and obviously he's at a, he's not a position of coach; he's obviously a, a more of a, a performance director or a GM or director of rugby, whatever you call it. Yeah, um, I, I think that generally. Um, one of the difficulties that happens is in this is not let's not to wear rugby. Let's just talk about organisation. Yeah, please. There's the three P's, which is uh, people, people, position, and and um, uh, and program. And generally, people will come into an organisation, and if they're in a position of of clout, um, they'll want to come in and they'll they'll want to do what they're used to. They won't want to adapt. So what generally happens is if they try to adapt to the system that's already there, they will appear to underperform because they're trying to get used to it. If they try to change everyone else to their system, everyone else underperforms and they look good. <laughs> yeah. And so what they'll generally do is they'll say, okay, well, I want every, and I've done this myself as a coach. I'm not, I'm not guiltless of this, this is from my own experiences. And, um, and then what'll happen is the whole group will not be performing to the standard they've got because that's, you know, their, their, their previous ability to use that system was functioned upon the cohesion of the group that they were in and the indoctrination of that system. So. Once this new person comes in, they say, right, let's change the system. Everyone else looks poor. So then they say to the GMs, I don't think the people who are here are up to it because they don't want to play the way I've, I've, I've designed. So they'll say, I want to start bringing in my own people. Yeah. So that's one thing that tends to happen. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of the boards, um, you know, one of the things that you have is, is collective memory. And oftentimes that collective memory can be a little bit hazy. And um, what tends to happen is you'll get a bunch of people together, like the class of 92 at Manchester United, and they'll become amazing. And people forget how bad those kids were. 
Nicky, but Gary Neville, you know, not you know, Giggs was pretty solid, pretty solid, obviously. Yeah. But if you you know, they lost four one to Leeds. They weren't necessarily world beaters, but they became what they became. And a lot of organisations, uh, this is called the cohesion gap. They forget how bad those kids were, and they don't have faith that those kids will, the next kids will redevelop. Mm. So a lot of the time when you re- try to replace a player, you try to replace like for like, which is the biggest mistake you can make. Because if you try to replace a player that you've had for, at a club for five years or 10 years with with a similar version of that player, then generally you're bringing someone in from somewhere else. What you want to do is you want to be replacing him six years earlier with a kid who's just as bad as he was and then have that kid come through the system and have faith in that system that it works. So that's why they tend to... Um, change players so regularly and then in terms of um changing managers is is i think that um um the, the we we have a very simple model which we call call, call uh, skill times cohesion equals capacity yeah and we can't find any coach in the world that can function above capacity so no coach is good enough to overcome a lack of cohesion they can they can help a team to get to their best so generally what a board will be doing is they'll be looking at a team saying look how much money we've spent Look at the, look at look at how how good we are, how good those players are. Look at how successful they were before. Therefore, we should be achieving to the same standard as the collective of those players. The difficulty is those the collective of those players is generally extremely uncohesive. You look at the dream team in basketball; they actually lost their first game to a college team, a bunch of kids. But um, so so the board will look at that collective and say, well, obviously it's not the players because look what we spent. Therefore, it's the coach. So then they get changed on. Um, and there's been other times where you've had a coach that wasn't necessarily a good coach, but the team was so cohesive they were just winning beautifully. You know, like yeah. if I, I always said if I took over Manchester United after Ferguson, I just would have sat in the grandstand eating crisps because because <laughs> they were so well built that they just continue to function. It probably doesn't help in the long term, but you know certainly um, it's it's where the next person comes in and tries to change that oftentimes creates creates difficulties. Excellent. I don't know if I, I don't know if I've answered your question at all. Well, if you haven't, you've answered a lot of very interesting questions besides that. So, uh, <laughs> so absolutely fine by me. Um, so, we, you mentioned before three years for a player to settle in. What does your analysis suggest about coaches settling in? Is it roughly the I think, same? I think each of them is different. I mean, generally, we find that coaches will. It, it depends on what they come in to do. What's interesting is, is we've seen scenarios where a coach has come into a team that is indoctrinated into a system yeah. and they've come in and they've they've been unable to get control of the group and unable to influence the group and because of that the team has continued to win oh right Does that make sense? yeah i could I, I could give you a couple of examples but i probably shouldn't um there's there's um there's also it's basically when sometimes they have a strength of character yeah that they do have an influence and they do, and the group then underperforms. They say, right, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And it doesn't necessarily work. Um, you know, I, th- I, think a, I think a really good example was Graham Henry at Wales versus Graham Henry at New Zealand. Mm. Now, he oh, was, yeah. you know, Wales at that point was not very well put together. Mm. And it wasn't until they changed their feeder systems that Welsh rugby really started to stand up. And, you know, he's... Graham Henry is, of the last six coaches, his record is easily the worst at Wales um, because of because of what happened after he left, which is he made recommendations and then um, they, they, they made some changes to the regionalisation. Now, 
if you look at how he went in New Zealand, is New Zealand rugby set up to be successful? It's a, it's a basically a, a beautifully set up me- uh, mechanism. It's, it's almost like an engine. A good sporting system is like an engine. Yeah. An engine just continues to produce. And, and you know, what you need is you need alignment, you need contractual stability, and you need good, and you obviously need good coaching. And you need talent coming through the pipelines. And when you get that, and, and, the, and it's basically what you do with that talent. That's why, like... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You know, Brazil is going to be fantastic at junior football, but not that good at senior football because of how the talent gets moved around. Whereas German football now, the talent coming through isn't that fantastic, but what ends up at the top is pretty good. Oh, yeah. So if you think it's like a mechanism, it's like a mechanism for, and what basically happens is the more diluted, uncohesive, misaligned the system is, the slower everyone develops. Mm. Uh, just and me, you need to sorry. overcome that with tons and tons and tons of talent, and that's what we didn't have here in the southern hemisphere as much. We didn't have the numbers, but we did have the systems uh, most of the time to be, to be producing talent quickly. Just talk to me a little bit about contractual stability, then. So contractual stability is basically. Are you are you a club that buys or are you a club that builds? Mm. And then if you do buy, do you hold or do you shift? Um, so I could give you, let me give you an example. The the lowest contractual stability team in the Aviva Premiership is Bristol. That would make a lot of uh, sense. Yeah. Um, number one is... Um, let me look. So it's Bristol, then Worcester... Um, and there's obviously financials to this, which obviously can't talk about too much with the bigger premiership because theoretically there's a salary cap. But, yeah. um, you know, when we, as we start to look at things, you can pretty much see who's spending the most money. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, you know, uh, a club like Bath is, uh, is not as high a cohesion team as they have been previously. That would be a good way to say it. But, um, and then there's, see, there's, there's, there's contractual stability, but then there's also stability of lineup on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, week to week, injuries. Um, we, there's about nine different things we look at. We look at the spine of a club. We look at the recency, the long term, the short term. So all of these things actually make a contribution. If you look at say Leicester City, Leicester City was not the most contractually stable team in the competition, but they had the most stable in terms of lineup on a week to week basis. Oh, now that's okay. plausible in the EPL where there is absolute total chaos now contractually. There's no stability. So we say Leicester City is the symptom of an illness. 
but that could never exist in a sport like the AFL or Gaelic football, where their contractual stability is like 40% above that of, say, the Aviva Premiership. Wow. So um, if you look at New Zealand rugby right now, every single one of the five teams in New Zealand is more aligned and contractually stable than all five of the Australian teams. And that and uh, that shows in, it, uh, in the results too, to be fair. Right now, yeah. Whereas, say, for example... Um, uh, the Brumbies in the late 90s was at night. Then we got a number called TWI. It was at 90%. Um, the Reds were at 90%. Um, Crusaders have pretty much always been parked in that area. That's, um, ama- that's amazing. Are there a, how do factors such as salary caps affect contractual stability? Well, uh, it's a really interesting one because every competition has a different makeup and a different set of rules that you have to go by. And so what that creates is, a, is, is, for example, if you've just got total chaos and no salary cap, it'll yeah. generally be the trading cycle and the richest team will win. But the richest team will win not because they can afford the best talent, but because they can hold on to the talent they want to. Ah. And that's probably where people, I think, have got it a little bit off the mark, so to speak. So if you can create an environment where people want to stay longer or, um, you know, we also go by the notion of young players learn faster, is that you don't necessarily need to keep people as long if they're young, if that makes sense. Like they'll learn, they go from 18 to 22, they've picked up the system. Mm. Um, so, you know, like a club like Tottenham is really successful in the appeal because they're young players, they bring them through their system and and they'll, you know, they'll take a minor pay cut to stay. You know, um, they won't, you know, you can't you can't throw 100 million at someone expecting them to say no, but... Um, in those type of systems, those guys are replaceable because of how the system is built. Yeah. Whereas we'll find non-cohesive teams will collapse in on themselves when they have a couple of injuries or they'll have a, lose a couple of players. Like it's a lawn that's just like fallen over. That's interesting. And that's, that's why I feel sorry for like George, George Ford, Mike Ford. Mike Ford. There's nothing. There's nothing he could have done to fix the lawn this year. Well, it's an interesting it was one. Just drastically down. Well, it's a very interesting one with Mike Ford because I guess I guess the team was relatively stable. But then the coaching situation was a complete mess. Um, I'm just going to have a look at what we have for Tawan for this year. Um, they were probably stable inside the context, but if you look at um, who's retired and the positions from where they have retired within Tawan, um, it wasn't perfect. You know, I'm just trying to have a look at them. Um, so in the top 14 this year, they were third last by our measures. Wow. Yeah. That's 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 absolutely absolutely incredible. Uh, just going back to the salary cap, then. I mean, Portme yeah, thinks that the salary cap is going to increase contractual instability because teams are going to be ditching their highest paid players more regularly to free up cap space. But on the other hand, the Aviva mixes in things like academy credits. So actually, holding on to your academy guys is going to be a lot more valuable. So I can't really make out. I can't really understand if the setup the Aviva's got is actually going to be beneficial long-term for England or not, because you seem to have these two conflicting forces. I mean, I mean, the thing about it is, is that whenever you've got a market that's got financial clout, like, say, French rugby, for example, French rugby sits a long way behind the rest of the world market mm. in terms of contractual stability. But they have, obviously, the financial clout. So, as we say, skill times cohesion is capacity. They can buy talent. They've got enough financial credit to buy talent, and that overcomes sometimes. Um, you know, like if you look at the, the budget, say between Exeter and Toulon, but they're pretty work, quite well matched now. Yeah. 
but Exeter is a is a well put together club. Um, they just. Uh, and I wouldn't say Toulon's badly put together. It's just different. It's just different. Um, I think that that the 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 increase of the salaries uh, of the wages needs to actually reflect the market. And for me, looking at it from the outside, I'm, I don't I don't um, necessarily. Um, uh, have any kind of answers but what I've seen before is when clubs produce talent but if they do it in the right way like there's a great example down here of the Melbourne Storm Rugby League Club they they built this incredible team of a bunch of young guys and they won titles you know three in five years or something like that and then what happens is is that the market starts to overvalue those players it thinks those guys are geniuses but the issue is if you take them out of that environment they won't perform to the same level right yeah so what they do is they've got a choice. Do we hold on to these guys or do we do we let them go? And they've built them, so why shouldn't they be able to hold on to them? Now, if you can, the, the difficulty is, is they weren't making any mistakes. The problem was the market was getting it wrong. The market was mis, misaligning the value of those athletes That's because they felt they were obviously very successful. So they said, right, the number, the, you know, Cameron Smith's now worth two and a half million dollars. So what does Melbourne do? Do we match it or do we keep it? So that's the difficulty for um, for clubs that are functioning under a salary cap. So what Storm decided to do was they decided to find a way to pay the players to stay. Now, I have less of a problem with that than a club that's just trying to buy wins by just bringing in, buying players from all across um, the world, all now, across just, Europe. Because for me, that's not necessarily producing anything. Just so, so sorry. From my end, that's where salary cap makes things extremely difficult. Just so I understand that, um, you mentioned the Storm. Um, was that the scandal where they where they breached the salary cap? Oh, by a mile, yeah. But uh, they're also functioning under a different environment, which is third party agreements. Right. So third party it. agreements stipulate that you can actually, as long as you've got an external sponsor, which will allow you to pay a player, um, then that's fine. But the difficulty is they're in Melbourne. It's a very crowded marketplace, and so they weren't able to find their sponsors. And so their only way to hold on to the players and actually match the salaries of the big market teams like Brisbane or or um, say North Queensland Cowboys was actually to create companies, so to speak, you know, <laughs> wow. um, and pay the players. So there's a, you know, the NRL is a really interesting system that we're sort of looking at at the moment, but it's not equitable from the from the perspective of at least the third party agreements. Um, um, you know, I, I actually don't mind a system that's a free for all. Really? Because at least that way, but as long as you have like a financial fair play, you've got to be able to match your, your output with your input. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd much rather just say, right, if you're making any money, you can spend it. Um, and what we generally find is that the teams that are built right and are high cohesion clubs, their market engagement is really strong because the fans love them. The fans love players they've known their whole lives that have only been at that club. Whereas, you know, my question would always be, if Manchester City started to lose, would people still show up? Uh, no, is the answer? Yeah. <laughs> Being, yeah, uh, living in Manchester, I can guarantee you it's a no. Uh, okay, so I, I think it's fairly well established then from a conversation so far that teams that build rather than buy are successful, but invariably teams do buy. One of my favourite teams in the Aviva is Exeter Chiefs. Now, yeah. when they buy, sometimes they bring in a, a, a big name, Dave Dennis, uh, Dean Mum, for, for instance. But quite yeah. often they're buying what I would consider almost like almost almost backups from from other teams, uh, the likes of Oli Devoto, who's a very good player, but you know was behind a few other lads at, at Bath. I'm trying to think of some more now. Uh, Ollie Woodburn. 
How do teams go about acquiring talent if that's what they want to do? And is there a proper way to do it? I think one of the things that's really interesting is that if you buy a player from a non-cohesive environment, they will be able to improve their output far to a far greater extent than players who are coming from high cohesion environments. So the hard part is actually being able to separate their skill level from what you see. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, so yeah if absolutely. If I'm, if I'm playing as 12 outside the world's greatest 10, I'm going to look pretty good. Mm. And if 13 knows exactly how I'm going to defend, I'm going to defend pretty well as well. If I'm the fourth number 12 that season in nine games, and I don't know how 10 is going to, I don't know the type of lines to run, I'm going to have a really difficult day at the office. And, 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 that's, and so therefore, I'm not going to look as good to people yeah. um, in the marketplace. So I think the really smart teams are able to look at players and say, you know what, we see something in him that maybe others don't. Um, and, and also what we find is the more cohesive the team is, the faster people can adapt. It's like going into work in a kitchen. If everyone in the kitchen like, doesn't even know where the pans and pots are, what chance have you got in going in and be able to cut carrots? Whereas yeah. if someone says, right, you, you, your knife's there, your chopping board's there, there's 50 carrots going. And that's basically what the Crusaders are able to do. They can bring in a guy like a Digby Iwani on the wing or bring in a Naholo, uh, not Naholo. Um, Nadolo. Uh, yeah, Nadolo, sorry. Um, and, and they basically said, that's your role, just do that part. And what I'm always surprised by talking to guys involved with the Crusaders is how simple their game plan is. Ah. But it's very, very effective. Well, that's... And so, yep. Uh, sorry to interrupt there. Yeah, that is the other thing that I, that, that I wanted to ask is about game planning. Is there anything which suggests that a simpler game plan is better for the over, for the overall team because the players can play faster for you know want of a better description? I probably described that horribly actually. No, no. I mean, what what I find is this that if you're a long, if you if any group of people are together long enough, you can start to look beyond the simple. Mm. But um, what, what I find is it's not necessarily about the complexity, but it's about the, co the complexity within simplicity. What I mean by that is if you, you listen to Cameron Smith talk about how he works with Cooper Croc mm. or Billy Slater. He'll say, all right, when I'm scooting from half, when I'm scooting, scooting as a hooker from the, from the base, I'm looking to the outside shoulder of the second defender. When he turns his shoulders inside, I know Kronk's going to be there on the outside. And I know exactly where to hit the ball. I put it out in front of the line I know he's going to run. Now, no one talks about rugby league like that they, because they don't have time to because most of them are trading into a team that they don't know anyone. So they're, they're, it's like, it's like um, you know, when the barbarians get together, they don't talk about patterns. They just say, let's have a really good time and you know, do the best we can. Let's just get a bit organised because they don't have time to be organised. Yeah. And so if, if you're together long enough, you can start to look at the really small details that are complex, but within a simple system. If you look at, if you, look at, if you ever talk to Victor Matfield and, and listen to him talk about lineouts, he runs really simple lineouts. He has this one seven man he's been running basically for like 15 years. <laughs> but what he can do is, is he can see by the foot position of the, of the middle jumper where that guy's going to lift. He'll have seen that line out 20 times and he'll just make you adapt to him. And then once you adapt, he then changes again and it's too late. So he's, he's, he's able to find the type of details that he needs to be able to be successful. And, and I think that when you have that level of adaptation to one another, 
then you can actually start to find the weaknesses in the opposition and find the weaknesses uh, and cover the weaknesses in yourselves. Absolutely incredible. Um, now, let's just turn this away from the professional game a second. You've spoken a lot about cohesion, um, a lot about culture. Is there anything which is you know practically free, uh, a, a, a sort of cultural tip which you can give to people in the lower leagues, something which they can implement immediately, which should be able to improve what improve what uh, what they do? So, if you're running if you're running a club, I think the first thing the first thing that you want to be able to be doing as a club is to be financially stable and stable from a governance perspective. Yeah. So if, if you get that part right first and say, right, the people who are here, let's not focus on bringing in the most talented people. Let's focus on who are the type of people who are going to be around here for a long time and want to help the place and aren't going to keep changing policies. Because all of this basically comes down to governance and permission. If a, if a, if a coach has permission to build a, a dynasty, he'll generally do it. But the problem is, is most of them don't think they've got permission to do it. They think they have to win to save their job. Yeah. So the first thing is creating a scenario from a governance perspective to say we're going to do, you know, in the we're going to do it in the long haul. We're going to do it right, and we're going to build slowly. Cohesion is something you can build slowly over the years, but you can destroy it in twenty minutes if you really put the effort in. So if you if you take the um, if you take the mandate of slow build, doing it right, and doing it doing it um, appropriately, and doing it within financial. Um, your own financial means, then you're going to be successful. I think one of the biggest problems we've found with clubs is they said to us, if we just win, we'll make enough money in sponsorship that next year we'll be able to pay to keep the players. We've just taken out a mortgage against the clubhouse in order to be able to buy. And that generally doesn't work. No. Because you bring the players in, you pay them a lot of money, you underperform against blokes you'd never dreamed that in fact you could lose to because they're a bunch of old guys from down the road but they've all played together since they were 19 and so then you and then i've heard a club say this to me once as they said it's not that we bought players it's just that we bought the wrong players so we're going to go out now and find more players <laughs> yeah so uh, it's it's like it's just so it's just repetitive in every sport it's kind of funny after a while so and and I, i've got to say like i've been part of this myself i've done this myself i've made all these mistakes i'm just trying to learn from my own mistakes then um, the thing to understand too is if you do try to buy a title, people won't stay. It's like saying it's like saying I'm going to I'm going to marry the woman I've had an affair with and expect her to be loyal, even though she's had an affair. Like it's you know it's not yes it doesn't necessarily make sense. You you know I'm going to buy people to come to me and they're going to take they're going to leave their club, and I'm going to pay them all money to do it. And then when they leave, I'm going to be surprised. Yeah. Because we can't afford them anymore. So. You know, every everyone is everyone acts different at their first club and their second club at their third club. You're not going to be as loyal to your third club as you would to be your first. It's just how human nature works. So um, there's there's understanding that you can't necessarily even if you do buy success, it'll be unsustainable. Amazing. Um, in, in the long term. I mean, everything, the next, yep. everything you've said so far. Uh, I I think the the competition it really applies most to, uh, or should I say. The competition with the most stark examples of what you've described must be the NFL. I mean, when you say you know things like bad characters, I think of old Cincinnati Bengals teams. When you talk about buying in players to win now, I think about the uh, Philadelphia Eagles team, their their so-called dream team, the New England Patriots that develop their own. It's not until you actually say it that these things become crystal clear. 
yeah, it's just we're just trying to measure the intangibles. And what what I do is I'm not looking at the athletes. I'm looking at the bits in between the athletes. Yeah. So their level of understanding to each other, their understanding of the system, um, and that actually affects how they actually develop. Um, in answer to your previous question, the the next part is is not to be um, seduced, not to be seduced by talent or seduced by money or seduced by opportunity. And there'll be that opportunity to get that player you thought you could never afford. It might be an ex, let's say, let's say you're a third division team and it's like an ex Aviva Premiership player offers to come and play for you for two years. Yeah. You know, it, that can work, no question. But, you know, when you, um, I, was, I was talking to our GM today and said that, that cohesion is like the fabric of the club. And every time you, you, you do something that damages, like you're stabbing it with a blunt knife. And most of the time it won't destroy it, but... If you stab something enough with a blood knife, you'll start to make holes and the fabric will tear apart. So generally, that you know, if you keep making those types of decisions, it's not it's not the damage that person does. Most people are good people; they'll come along. But it's also what it says to the players. When yeah. you say, when you bring a player in above a young player, it actually say, you know, you can say, you know, there's there's what you say and there's what you do, and what you do is you say you don't trust me. And you don't trust me to come through the system, so then they lose a little bit of loyalty. So we talk about turnover creates turnover. Is if you show disloyalty to the people you have, they will be disloyal in return, and that's when they say, "Well, there's no loyalty left." But there is. There's hundreds of organisations that are built extraordinarily well. Mm. Um, and and that that example you gave the NFL, I think the NBA too is a really good example. Like a San Antonio Spurs, um, the way they've built themselves, um, and so the opposite of like Brooklyn or New York Knicks right now, or, or, or even things like recent Lakers teams. Yep. Yep. Uh, um, there's also there's also a law of diminishing returns with skill too, which is just to say it quickly, it's like yeah, please. You know, a, a player who's a ten out of ten is going to cost you a million. A player who's a seven out of ten is going to cost you a hundred thousand. So when you spend the you know the million on three players, you're going to have to get you're going to have to eat it somewhere else. And generally, the more even the more even you are, the better you do. Sorry, I think exactly that about the George Ford move next year. George Ford is a superb player. But how much better is he than the guy he's replacing, and how much more money have they paid to replace him? And also, um, how much, how how long is it going to take him to adapt? Yeah, I mean, another three years is going to be a very, <laughs> it's going to be a very tough ask. So, mm. Ben, who are you currently working for, and where can we find your work? Are you on any social media channels, and anything like that? Yes, yeah, so we're uh, we're Gameline Analytics. We're on Facebook, Twitter, um, and we're on um, we've got a website which is Gameline.biz. Um, we are not in um, when I'm not in a position to tell you which teams we work for. That's that, uh, that's more than fair. However, I can tell you that we've worked for uh, a top four club in the EPL. Yep. Uh, teams in the Aviva Premiership, Super Rugby, um, uh, the uh, um, the uh, I'm trying to remember the term 2020 cricket here in Australia. Yep. Um, representational um, rugby league teams here in Australia. Um, there's not many of them. Um, teams in the NRL uh, team. We've just signed a team in Super. Another is our second Super Rugby client, um, and uh, we've done little bits of Bob. So one for a team in the Pro 12. Um, so we've we've had we've had um, we've we've got probably about 10 or 15 clients. But to be honest with you, it's not always a popular message. Yeah, it's not always necessarily what people want to hear. Um, we had a club that we actually said to them, we can't tell if your coach is any good because your club's set up so badly that you should be coming last. So you've got no right to fire him, but they still fired him. So <laughs> it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily uh, what, what 
you know, if, if you blame it on governance, then you're going to be unpopular. Yes, um, I mean, that does make within, a lot of sense. Organizations, particularly they're the ones paying the bills. So we've actually found it much easier to assess than it is to influence. I mean, I suppose what you've just described there is one of the most ironic things ever, because the clubs that are doing well also like your message because you're telling them that they're doing well, and it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and, and um, what's, what's, what's interesting about it is two things. One, we tend to work with teams either coming dead last or first. We never tend to work with teams in the middle. Wow. Um, we, also, um, we also have found over time that um, people will talk to us as, as, as um, when they basically either started a job or just before they leave a job. <laughs> Yeah. Because they're tr- they're trying to they've got an agenda, but then they often get you know with a, there's a guy we're talking to at the moment, and the longer you talk to him, the more he gets caught up in the minutiae of the day to day about the coaching and things like that. And it's kind of harder to actually get through and talk to those guys about looking at the wide bigger picture. Yeah. And and the other part is it's not necessarily things that people can totally control. When we first started talking, we we're talking to analysts, and they were saying like, "This is great, but this is way above our pay grade." So it's a much longer sell for us to get in to talk to the boards, talk to the owners. Um, what has surprised me, I would say, is that money doesn't necessarily seem to create um, uh, better governance. Yeah, I've, I've seen I've seen some of the best governance I've, I've ever seen at local club sport, and some horrific governance at at you know some of the highest levels of, uh, of football. Oh, I can and imagine that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so um, all my listeners are free to fire questions at you over Twitter, on Facebook, all of that stuff? Yeah, happy to. I, I, so, you know, I, I do get the, the question, how do you measure it most days? Um, I can't necessarily give away all that part, <laughs> but I'm always happy to have a discussion. I'm, um, I'm always interested. We, we're doing, we do a lot of work, obviously, over, over, the, over um, online. Um, most of our staff are actually in Europe most of our resources in Europe. But um, the thing also is that when we work for people, we actually charge by market cap. Yeah. So we'll charge, if we're working, let's say let's say I was working for Real Madrid tomorrow, I'd charge them 50 times what I would charge a Kidderminster Harriers or Yorkshire wow. County because um, we think we have, uh, over time, we have the ability to, f- to affect the financial outcomes of an organisation and the decisions that you help them to make have a bigger clout. So we tend to... Um, we tend to charge by whatever they can afford. That's a very so, cool analytical way to charge for charge for analytics. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if that'll work on event data, but in this case, we sort of uh, think we have a solid different different perspective. And and with all this too, like I I am an analyst at heart. I love Moneyball. I'm just trying to add a slightly different perspective and a different way of looking at something than um, than, than other people have been. That, that I think does make a difference. Just before I let you go, then uh, one final yeah. question: Is there anyone in the world of analytics now who, um, other than yourself, is really influencing you, or you think is doing something really, really interesting? Um, I, I, what's none of our data actually comes from sport. None of our theories actually come from sport. Yeah. So I'm more looking at how people look at businesses, how people value businesses, how people value governance of teams. So when I look at an organization, I don't necessarily see sport, I just see a group of people working together in a good way or a bad way. So in terms of what I'm reading and what we're looking at, I'm more looking at um, uh, the way that armies are built 
the way that drug cartels function, the way that airlines lost to their pilots. Yeah. I'm not this, I'm trying to take that understanding and a lot of the uh, academic data and bring that across into sports. So like I'm not I'm not necessarily looking at GPS data or looking at what people are doing with um, with head coding or you know, XY positions or stuff like that. I've kind of gone away from the the, the small and gone to the gone to the wide because I'm really I, I almost I think of it almost as like sport sports sporting anthropology. Yes, it's like it's like a society. Um, so I I try to do a lot of readings around history and um, armed forces and and business and how they work and why things work and why things collapse. Um, so that's, I don't look enough to, to answer your question, to be honest with you. Excellent. Well, Ben, you've been an absolutely fascinating guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, and hopefully, I'm going to have to get you on again at some point so we can catch up and uh, just see what's new in the world of rug, uh, rugby sport and the wider world of analytics. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.